Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to do verses 1 through 11. Our context is this. In Romans 1, Paul talked about the wrath that's on the world, on Gentiles. In Romans 2, he did the same, and also he added the Jews. The wrath of God is on all the human race. And so there's none that's righteous, no, not righteous. As he goes to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, he says, because we're all condemned by the wrath of God, we need justification, and it has to be apart from the law. And so he talks about justification by faith at the end of chapter 3, goes into chapter 4, and talks about how Abraham was justified by faith apart from the law, and therefore he's the father of all who believe, Jews as well as Gentile Christians. Then Paul goes into chapter 5, talks about the benefits of justification, and then he talks about how uh, Jesus' life sinless life was substituted for the life of sinful Adam as the head of the whole justified human race, at least that part of the human race that believes in Jesus. So then, now that Paul has got us justified, he now needs to see us sanctified, so he switches to chapters 6, 7, and 8, and in chapter 6 he talks about how sin destroys the sanctified Christian life, and it just, and it makes us slaves, and then he goes to chapter 7, and he talks about how law produces sin. So, Chapter 6 is against sin, and chapter 7 is against the law in the sense of using the law to produce righteousness and conquering sin. Now he goes to chapter 8, and he says, this is how you get sanctified, folks, not by the law, but by life in the Holy Spirit. Now I have chosen to entitle this section of Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, as life in the Spirit beats life under the law, sin, flesh, and death. We start with Romans 8, 1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Paul is referring back to Romans 7. For example, in Romans 7, 6, where he says this, But now we have been released from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old letter of the law. To put it more succinctly, since we have been released from and died to the law, we aren't under condemnation. In other words, since we have been released from the law, Romans 7, Romans 8, 1, therefore no condemnation now exists. He's trying to show the contrast between being under the law and being in Christ Jesus and in the life of the Spirit. So since we are free from the law, therefore no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. The law points out, stimulates, and condemns sin. But the Christian is no, un, no longer under the law. So that, therefore, we have no condemnation. Because that's what the law's purpose is, is to condemn sin. But we're not sinners anymore. We're saints. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. Another way of saying that, the logical equivalent, is to saying that sin will rule over you, because you are under law, and not under grace. But therefore, since we're under grace, therefore, not, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. So let me give you a review of chapter 6 and 7 because that leads right into chapter 8. Chapter 6 says we have died to sin in verses 2 and 11. We have been set free from sin, verses 7 and 22, and sin no longer has dominion over us in verse 14, with the result that we can bring forth fruit unto sanctification. Chapter 7 can be summarized this way. Romans 7, 1 through 6 states that in Christ we have died to the law, and we are, and that's verse 4, and we are free from the law, verse 3, and the no law is no longer binding on us in verse 1 with the result that we can bring forth fruit for God. So sin is gone, the law is gone for the, those in Christ Jesus, and now 
There is freedom, there is liberty, there is joy, there is life, and there's no condemnation. We don't have to worry about going to hell. There's no penalty, there's no punishment, there's no damnation. Who gets to enjoy this blessed estate? Those in Christ Jesus. Now, I've often said that when you see in, it's you can translate it as in union with. I actually did a study on that one time and proved it to my satisfaction. I don't have those notes in front of me, but I do have the comment from the NIV Study Bible, which says that in Christ Jesus means united to Christ, which is the same thing as in union with Christ. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this. This is no mere legal arrangement. It is a union in life. Believers, through the indwelling of Christ's Spirit in them, having one life with Him, as truly as the head and the members of the same body have one life. That's how close we are. We're as close as the head of a human body is to its torso. That's how close we are with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are in Christ, and that's how we escape condemnation. And as we go through Romans 8, that's, that's also how we, we bear fruit, which, of course, is the point of chapter 8, our sanctification, how we bear fruit for Christ. Some later manuscripts add to this verse, one, who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The KGV adds that, so the verse reads, Therefore no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Well, even if the that phrase is not in the original manuscripts, the idea is certainly true. The whole point of this next chapter is, of this chapter 8 is, we don't live according to the flesh. We live according to the Spirit. Life in the Spirit trumps life under the law, sin, flesh, and death. We go to verse 2 which is in the middle of a sentence. So I'm going to go back to verse 1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. Now verse 2. Because the spirit of law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The because means because you are, there is no, why is there no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Verse 2. Because the spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. Set us free from what? From the law of sin and death. So there's that constant contrast you see all the way through Romans 8 is life in Jesus, life in the Spirit, and under law you see sin and you see death. And slavery sometimes is mentioned also. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible here translates law as law because the Spirit's law of life. That is confusing because it's not really a law. In fact, it's sort of oxymoronic to say law and Spirit in the same breath. A spiritual law, a law of the Spirit is oxymoronic. Because the two contradict each other, so Paul could be using this word ironically. Let me give you some options of how we could use how we can understand this word law. First, it's an ironic use of the word, since law is diametrically opposed to life in the spirit. Paul is using it here to show the parallel of two kinds of life. He's 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 saying, okay, there's a law of death in the under the law, the law of sin and death, but there's also another law, and and you put air quotes around it. There's another so-called law using the sense ironically. The NIV Study Bible translates it this way, a controlling power. So it says, this is option number two, because the Spirit's controlling power in Christ Jesus has set you free from the controlling power of sin and death. Well, that's true, but I don't think that's what law means in general. I, don't, I think that's a stretch, even though the, the sentiment is true. I guess what the NIV Study Bible is thinking, a law controls you. It has power over you, just as a civil law keeps you from stealing things. So... When you say law, you mean the controlling power that's over you. The best way, in my opinion, is to do it the way Steve Ackerson does it, and to, and to, trans, to is to translate that word law as a principle, because the principle of the Holy Spirit's life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the principle of sin and death. 
In fact, the Homer Christian Study Bible in some places translates law as principle in the previous chapter, but here they chose to translate it as law. I don't know why they switched from one for the other, but I think it would have been a good idea to translate it as principle. Paul used this term law in a, in a, in a sense of principle in another place in Romans 7.23, but I see a different law in the parts of my body. That's not the Mosaic law. I see a different principle in the parts of my body, waging war against the principle of my mind or the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the principle of sin in the parts of my body. I like that because it might be a little clumsy, but at least it distinguishes the law of Moses because the word law is used so many times in the book of Romans, it can be quite confusing. Now, let me give you an idea using a homely illustration of what it means to be free from the law of sin and death. This is from my good friend Steve Ackerson, who is a master of down-to-earth homey illustrations. He says that the law of the Spirit is like the law of aerodynamics, which let us fly over the gravity of sin. Sin tries to pull you down to death, but your airplane wings the Holy Spirit lets you fly over that. You don't have to die. You don't have to crash. We go to verse 3 in Romans 8. What the law, uh, this is the Mosaic law, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. What the law could not do, what could the Mosaic law not do? Well, now we know the Mosaic law could point out sins and therefore increase the knowledge of sin or multiply the knowledge of sins. One. Two, we know that the law, this is in Roman, it's Romans 7, 4, says that the law against coveting produced more coveting. So we know the law can produce more sin. So the law can increase the knowledge of sin. It can create, the, it can increase the commission of sin. And it can condemn sin and tell us what is sin, but there's one thing it can't do. It can't deliver us from sin. Why? Because it was limited by the flesh. In other words, in order to, to get life from the law, you've got to keep it. In order to keep it, you've got to use your, 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 your human strength, which means your arms, your legs, your body, to, to speak metaphorically. You've got to use your flesh to keep the law, and you can't do that. So the law is limited by the flesh because the flesh is limited. It has no power to keep the law. But what the law could not do, God did. Now, how did God keep the righteous requirements of the law? Well, he sent his own son in the flesh like ours. Now, when Paul says here in verse 3, Romans 8, that Jesus is in the flesh like ours, it means that Jesus had a physical body like ours with one exception. The one exception was he was sinless. His body was sinless. Ours is not. Here's a scripture saying that, Hebrews 2.14, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So Jesus has flesh and blood just like us. That gets rid of any idea of docetism, that Jesus is not really human, that he's not really fleshly, that he's just a ghost. No, he had a body. He shared flesh and blood with us, but it was not sinful. Now, he sent his own son, and God sent his own son in flesh that was like ours, flesh and blood, under sin's domain. In other words, we live down here in a world of sin, and guess what? The Son of God, Jesus, had to do the same thing. He had to live with all the garbage that's in the world. Look at the Pharisees. Look at the Sadducees. How do you, you think our culture's bad? Think of the culture that Jesus had to live under. A bunch of murderers, and they, and they eventually murdered him. Well, that murder was is said to be a sin offering here in verse 3. And of course, a sin offer atoned for, carried away, if you will, covered sin in the Old Testament Levitical cult, 
cultus, I shouldn't say cult, that sounds bad, in the uh, Old Testament Levitical system. And Jesus, that was the type of Jesus, the antitype, who was offered for our sin to take sin away. Because where there's a death, there's got to be where, where blood is shed and life is taken, there has to be blood for blood. There has to be blood given for that. And the human race is guilty of capital murder, at least, if not worse. And so there has to be blood given for that. And Jesus gave his blood for that as a sin offering. Now, Paul in verse 3 says that he, God, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, there's a couple ways you can take that phrase, in the flesh. You could say, God condemned sin in man's sinful flesh. In other words, he, can sin, he condemned the sin that man has in himself. Or, option that's option one. Option two is, he condemned sin in Jesus' flesh, in his human flesh, which of course was not sinful, but he did have a human nature, a fleshly human nature. And so the verse would mean that Jesus condemned sin in or through the means of Jesus' human flesh being nailed to the cross. So he condemned sin in the flesh. Then I've thought the Bible prefers that option. I don't know. That's what I always thought, took it to. He condemned sin by sending his son in the, in the flesh. But it could be he condemned sin. God condemned sin in the flesh of human beings. Now, this phrase in verse 3, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh. Jameson Fawcett and Brown's got a nice way of saying that. The law can only irritate our flesh into more virulent action. That's right. Romans 8, verse 4. And in the middle of a sentence again, so let me go back to the end of verse 3. He, God, condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. Verse 4, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, you notice the law has high standards. It has laws, law, a lot of requirements, but it's weak through the flesh because you can't keep the law. However, the, accomplish, the, the requirements of that righteous holy law can be kept in those who walk according to the spirit. So that's the idea is the law is holy. You can't keep it, but you can keep it if you walk according to the spirit. Or you can keep the, the what, what the law requires. You can do it if you walk according to the spirit, but not according to the flesh. Because as we'll see, you walk according to the flesh. It's walking according to, according to the law. The law is limited by the flesh, and the flesh produces sin and death. Now let me make a theological statement here. I often complain about reformers who are constantly talking about we need to keep the moral law of Moses and that is basically sanctification by the law. But in order to be a little bit fairer to them, to be a little bit more precise, what they're saying is to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I realize that a lot of reformers don't take different emphases on this. But the idea, if you say that we're supposed to keep the Mosaic law, and of course you have to slice the Mosaic law up into three parts, moral, judicial, and civil, civil but let's just say we slice it up, take the moral part and say, we can keep the moral parts of the Mosaic law if we walk according to the Spirit. Now, in that case, the difference between Reformed theologians and New Covenant theologians becomes a little bit less stark because now you're not using your flesh to keep the moral part of Mosaic law and therefore you're not te technically a legalist. You're not walking in the flesh. And I'll grant them that. However, I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. I think when Paul says the law's requirements... I think all the law's requirements were repeated and intensified and made more stringent in the law of Christ in the New Testament. Well, even under a more stringent requirement in the New Testament, the only way we're going to walk and fulfill those more stringent requirements is we have to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. 
walking in the power of the Spirit, but not according to the weakness of the flesh. How is the New Testament law of Christ more powerful than the Old Testament law of Moses? Moses says, don't even don't commit adultery with a woman. Jesus says, don't even look at her. Think about it. Stronger. Moses said, don't murder somebody. Jesus said, don't even get angry at them. Now, this idea that we keep the requirements of the law by walking in the Spirit is held by reformers and apparently by the NIV Study Bible because the NIV Study Bible says this, the law is a moral guide, a rule of life. And then we keep that moral guide with the power of the Spirit. I think that's error. I think we keep the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, because the law of Christ includes within it the requirements of the law of Moses. So when we keep the law of Christ, we, by default, also keep the law of Moses, plus some more, because the law of Christ is more stringent than the law of Moses. Now that phrase, we do not walk according to the flesh, that means we do not live according to the flesh. That's a common metaphor that's used in the scriptures. We go to verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit about the things of the Spirit. Those who think about the things of the flesh, that's Holman Christian Study Bible. NIV has those who have their minds set on the things of the flesh. So your mind is consumed with the flesh. Now you say, well, that's just somebody thinking about Playboy magazines all the time. Well, not necessarily. It could be a mind set on doing good. I'm going to build a big ministry for Jesus. And I'm going to, and I'm going to work and I'm going to strive and I'm going to sweat and I'm going to get it done in my because of my natural abilities, because of my speaking ability, because of my handsome face, because of all the money I've got, or whatever. you thinking about the things of the flesh? That You're thinking about things of the flesh when you do that. Now let's use a homely illustration about the mind set on the flesh. Your mama tells you don't put your hand in the cookie jar. You can't eat those cookies. So what do you think about all day long? You think about cookies morning, noon, and night, and when you go to bed. And you're eating eaten up with the fact that you can't get the cookies. That's death. Now, when we talk about things of the flesh, I need to make this important elaboration of what it means to be in the flesh. There's two ways. One is you can be thinking about sinful things. That would be looking at the playboy. The other way you can get in the flesh is thinking about how to do good things in your natural strength. That was the example I just gave you. Now, we need to go back to the controversy those who live according to the flesh. The controversy in the last chapter, who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about unregenerate people or regenerate people? Well, if he's talking about unsaved people, those who are unsaved lived according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. Well, that's easy enough. That's what unsaved people do. They think about sinful things all the time. But if he's talking about saved people, then it would be those who are saved but who are living according to the flesh, under the law, of course. They think about the things of the flesh, and I think that's what Paul's talking about trying to live godly, using the law. I remember Paul had a lot of trouble with legalists in the early years of the church. Look, read the book of Galatians. Read this book of Romans. Legalism was a terrible problem. And I suspect it was Christians who were trying to do good things by keeping the law that was the larger aspect of those who were operating according to the flesh rather than Christians who were out and out going out and trying to sin. Romans 8, verse 6, For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. There's that big contrast. Law, flesh, death, spirit, life and peace. Law is not mentioned here, but it's mentioned in other areas of the passage that we are going to talk about. Well, in fact, it was just mentioned in verse 4. The law's requirement is not kept by those who are walking in the flesh. The law could not do since it's limited by the flesh. So there's law, flesh, and now, verse 6, death. 
For the mindset of the flesh is death. Now, the NIV translates of the flesh, or at least the margin has the mindset on the flesh is death, which I like a little bit better. The mindset on the flesh is death. You think about trying to do good things for God in your own strength, you're going to die. You think about sin, you're going to die. But if you have your mindset on the things of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is he's nothing but righteousness, and he lives in you. And he's going to reward you for thinking about things of the Holy Spirit. If you get rid of your hatred and your revenge and your animosities and whatever, your lies, your cheating of the truth and all that kind of stuff. If you get rid of that, what do you get? Life and peace? Is that a fair exchange? I think so. And again, I'm assuming this is talking about Christians who are carnally, weakly trying to live under the law using their flesh as opposed to a Christian that's walking in the Spirit. If you hold to the other view of Romans 7... Then it's talking about unsaved people have their mind set on the flesh and are dying, but Christians are set on the spirit, their mind set on the spirit, and they receive life and peace. We go to verse 7. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Hostile means enemy. Those who are living in the flesh are enemies of God. So you sit around here and you're trying to do good things for God in your flesh. You're his enemy. You're not his friend. You're his enemy. Here's the first that shows this idea about us being enemies. Now, this scripture is talking about unsaved people living in the flesh, not saved people, so it's not directly applicable to here if Paul is talking about Christians who are having trouble with the flesh. But it talk, it shows how non-Christians are subject to the flesh and how they're enemies of God. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions or because of your flesh, you are hostile, you are an enemy. Now notice that one who is hostile to God does not submit himself to God's law, or the mindset that's set on the flesh cannot submit itself to God's law, for it's unable to do so. Now if we take verse 7 in the sense of an unsaved person, which I don't, but if let's just say if we do, that has implications for soteriology. Because this verse says that the mind set on the flesh is unable to submit to God. Unable? How can one freely choose salvation if he is unable to submit to God? Take the classic Arminian metaphor. God has a vote, the devil has a vote, and the unbeliever has a vote. And he can choose to accept God or reject God. He has free will, unhindered, untrammeled free will where he can choose. But this says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Can't do it. And even though I think this is really talking about the carnal Christian, the fleshly Christian living under the law, we know that unbelievers do not have the Holy Spirit with them. We also know that they are in the flesh and are hostile to God. Colossians tells us about it. And if they are hostile to God and unable to choose God, how can we be an Arminian? I haven't figured that out yet. We go to verse 8, Romans 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Oh, there's that cannot. Unable to. Can't please God if you're in the flesh or non-believers in the flesh. Obviously slow. And again, I, I really think Paul is talking about carnal Christians here who are legalistic Christians who are trying to please God through the law and they can't please God by doing that. And I say, that okay, that's not a problem. But let's just assume, let's, just, let's, let's state the obvious fact that those who aren't believers are in the flesh. And Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, he didn't say they will not please God. They choose not to please God. He says they cannot please God. What does that say about the doctrine of total inability, unable, total depravity? 
irresistible grace. In other words, God saves us because we can't save ourselves. So he therefore regenerates us first and then we respond to that prior regeneration freely of our regenerated will. Unable folks, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. So how are you going to choose God? Dead men don't choose. If we're dead in Christ, I have yet to figure out how a dead man can choose Christ. I know Armenians say we can, but I, I just don't understand how they explain that. Romans 8 verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, of course, Paul is now talking about Christians, because he says, You are in the Spirit, so that's Christians. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there's the the state or condition that separates that distinguishes non-believers from believers. Do you have the Spirit of God living in you? The Spirit of God lives in you. Now, this verse actually makes it sound like Paul in Romans 7 in, in Romans 7 is talking about unregenerate people because Paul here in Romans 8 distinguishes those who are in the flesh as not having the Spirit. And then in Romans 7, Paul is talking about Christians in the flesh, excuse me, people in the flesh. And so if you, if Paul stays the same between Romans 7 and 8. He's talking about people in the flesh, not in the spirit, unsaved people in Romans 8, and therefore that would be unsaved people in Romans 7. I don't believe that. I think that what Paul is doing here, he talked about Christians battling the flesh in Romans 7. He's still talking about Christians battling the flesh in Romans 8. And then, and so what he says is, look, you're not in the flesh, in the spirit, because so you can beat the flesh by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And then he makes the contrast with those who are in the spirit and who are, don't have the spirit of Christ. And the point of making that contrast is to say, look, non-believers can't please God. They're unable to please God because they don't belong to him. But guess what? You guys, you've got the Holy Spirit, so you can please God. The Holy Spirit lives in you, so you are not of the flesh. He's trying to make a contrast between how you should be living as a Christian as opposed to how people who don't have the Spirit live. So I think that explains Paul's reference to people who don't have the Spirit of Christ living in the flesh. He's trying to contrast Christians who are living in the flesh with non-Christians who are living in the flesh and saying, ah, that ought not to be that way because you have the Spirit of Christ. So you're different. So you need to live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And notice here that Paul uses the phrase Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God in the same verse, which shows that God and Christ are one, two different, two persons with the same divine nature. It's a good Trinitarian verse. The Spirit of you, we can say the Spirit of Christ just as well as we can say the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. We go to Romans 8:10. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now we know. And, of course, when Paul says Christ is in you, that's because the Holy Spirit's in you. He said the Holy Spirit was in you in verse 9, since the Spirit of God lives in you. And then he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, that shows that he equates the Holy Spirit and Christ. And there, and since the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is in us, Jesus is in us. This shows that Christ and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in divinity. Good Trinitarian verse, as I said. Now, continuing in verse 10, if Christ is in you, and of course the answer to that is yes, he is in us. The body is dead because of sin. Now, what does the body is dead because of sin mean? Here's some options. One is just talking about the physical body is dead because of the sin that we that we commit. So the body dies a physical death. This is the NIV study Bible's view, Steve Ackerson's view, John Gill's view, Adam Clark's view, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view. So I guess that view is correct that so many people hold it. 
I'm going to give you another option in a minute. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that if you take this as the body's physical death, that makes Romans 7.24 read the same way when Paul says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this dying body? And, of course, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation makes it look like a dying physical body. Now, in support of this view, we read the next verse, verse 11. And verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. Now, all the way through that verse, bodies is obviously referring to physical bodies. Raised Jesus from the dead, that's physically. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead physically will also bring your mortal bodies, your mortal physical bodies to life. So the context is very clearly bodies, and so that makes us think that Paul is saying in verse 10, the physical body is dead because of sin. A third reason why we want to make this body refer to a physical body is that Paul does not use the word for flesh, which can mean body. Sometimes that's sarks, but he uses the Greek word soma, and soma refers to the physical body. Paul doesn't use soma to refer to the metaphorical principle of being separate from the power of God, flesh. The metaphorical use, use of flesh is Paul always uses the Greek term sarks, but here he uses body, which is phys which is literal. It means the body. Okay, well that's a pretty strong argument. I think the body, the physical body, did because of sin. However, some people take this phrase to mean the flesh is the the body is spiritually dead because of sin. In other words, you can't live out your life in your body because it's spiritually been killed by sin. Now John Gill denies. That view, Adam Clark suggests it, or at least he doesn't deny it. So the way we would read this is the body which carries out the desires of sin and is therefore producing spiritual death. So we read the verse, Now if Christ is in you, the body which carries out the desires of sin and is, is producing spiritual death. And that would have to go along with the Greek translation, which I haven't gotten into, but that's kind of the idea is, is behind this, this interpretation. In other words, the life that you live in your body is dead because of your sin. It's not that your physical body is dead, but the life that your body leads is dead because of sin. The members of your body bear fruit for death. They produce works of death. That would go along with an interpretation of Romans 7.24, second part of the verse. Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body which is producing death? Not who will deliver me from this body which is going to die. But who is going to deliver me from this body which wants to do one thing and ends up doing another? Because it is infected with sin. That's the metaphorical use of the word. And so if we have Christ in us, as Adam Clark says, quote, The members of your body no more perform the work of sin than the body of a dead man does the functions of natural life. In other words, your body does the works of evil. Because the your body is that now producing spiritual death because of the sin that's in your body or in your flesh. Well, that's nice. That's making a parallel to Paul's use of the word flesh in Romans 7. But I really think the first option is that Paul is talking about here, the physical body is dead because of sin. He's not using the, a, a metaphorical use of a dead body producing works of sin and death. Right, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That's the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of the Holy Spirit, who Paul in the previous verse and this verse says is in us. The Spirit of God is in you, and as Christ is in you, then the Spirit of life is in you, and therefore you are going to be righteous. 
you're going to live because of the righteousness that is in you, the righteousness which is Jesus, the righteousness which is Christ. That, my friends, is how you live a sanctified Christian, victorious Christian life. It's not by keeping the law. It's but by Jesus in you, by Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you. Now we have one more point to take up here. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Well, I just said that's a spiritual life. But now the analogy is not so pure because if the body is dead, that's talking about a physical body is dead. But then we go to the spirit is life. Does that mean the spirit is life in our body? So therefore that last part of the verse is referring to a resurrected body in the afterlife. But the spirit is resurrected bodies because of righteousness? I don't think so. That doesn't sound right. So if you take the spirit as life, which of course is the point of Paul in Romans 8, it's talking about spiritual life, not a resurrected body's life, but our spiritual life, then that would tend to make you think that when Paul says the body is dead because of sin, that's talking about our fleshly, carnal life in this life. So that's an argument on the other side. I won't take a stand on that because it is possible that Paul is saying, okay, the body is dead, and then he switches to, but on the other hand, the spirit in this life is life. I mean, you know, you could change your a similar idea that Paul has could lead to another similar idea that's not exactly the same idea. I mean, if you take this argument from context so strong, if once Paul takes up topic A in chapter 1, by the time he gets to chapter 16, he's still got to be talking about topic A, and he never, he never transitions to similar subjects on the way. So, to summarize, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. I think it refers to the physical body. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. I think that Paul is referring to our life in the spirit in this world, not a resurrected body's life. We go to verse 11 and we'll shut it down for this audio. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Now, this is a strong verse teaching the resurrection of the dead. I wish every hyperpreterist heretic in the world would read it, meditate upon it, memorize it. There is a close connection between Jesus' resurrection and the believer's resurrection. And all hyperpreterist heretics believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. Well, let's look at the verses that show that believers are raised from the dead also physically. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 1 Corinthians 15.20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ has been raised and then we, he's the first fruits and we are the latter fruits, if you will. We are are raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15:23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The context of that is resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians 4:14, 4, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. What could be clearer, folks? Philippians 3:21, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Folks, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to believe his word. And if you believe in his word, you're going to believe in the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is in all the three Orthodox creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. It cannot be denied unless you want to be a heretic. Resurrection of the dead, to me, is something that's kind of hard to picture. Sometimes I've had trouble with that because I'm a reforming skeptic. But I tell you, I believe it. I don't believe that God left us here to molder in the grave. 
He will bring your mortal bodies to life, Paul says in Romans 8, through his Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you, he said in verse 9 and verse 10. He said, Jesus lives in you. And he goes back to verse 11, his Spirit lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Jesus lives in you, who can be against you? Who can conquer you? Who can jerk you out of his hands? Nobody and no thing can do it. I think what Paul has done here in Romans 11, he's been, excuse me, Romans 8:11. he was talking, talking about possibly raising the physical body in verse 10 because Christ is in us. And then he says the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's talking about, I think, the sanctified spiritual life on earth. And then he makes a natural transition. Since Jesus is helping you live a spiritual sanctified life on earth, hey, guess what? He's also going to raise you bodily in the afterlife. One last point before we shut it down. The Holman Christian Study Bible, this is interesting. He says, they translate, then he who raised Christ from the dead. That translation has a habit of translating Christos, the Messiah, as Messiah, giving the the Hebrew translation, the Aramaic translation, rather than the Greek Christ. But here they use Christ, and I don't know why. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished Romans 8, 1 through 11. We will continue in Romans 8 in the next chapter as we talk about not living in the flesh but living in the spirit see you next time hope you enjoyed this audio